Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I remember thinking to myself, you have to stay calm. You have got to stay present. I quickly ascertained I wasn't the first victim and I was not going to be his last victim. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolb. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Jennifer Thompson. Jennifer was a young college student when she was brutally attacked, raped, and nearly murdered in the middle of the night. She will explain to you in great detail how somehow she had the wherewithal to focus on all the details of her attacker's face and body. Jennifer survived and hours later found herself in the hospital with her body as the crime scene. In the hours and days that followed, Jennifer was interrogated and asked over and over again to rack her memory and help identify the man they knew to be a serial rapist. With a sketch she helped to create and a life-changing moment in a face-to-face lineup, Jennifer's rapist was caught. He was found guilty and sentenced to 54 years in prison. But this is just the beginning of Jennifer's story. A decade later, Jennifer received a call that she had in fact identified an innocent man. Her rapist ran free while a man named Ronald Cotton spent a decade in prison. Jennifer shares that the pain of that day pales in comparison to the night of her attack. We talk about forgiveness, for ourselves and others. She also talks about the science of the brain and the systematic failures that lead to wrongful convictions. Today, Jennifer and Ronald Cotton are friends. To restorative justice and understanding the science of our memories, why wrongful convictions happen, and what we can do as a nation to prevent them in the future. Here's today's interview with Jennifer Thompson. Jennifer, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always like to have our guests begin by introducing themselves. How would you introduce yourself? Well, I guess I'd probably introduce myself as a fierce advocate for um, all things justice or injustice, depending on how, how you look at it. So I'm an advocate, I am an activist, I am a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a founder of a nonprofit, I'm an author of a New York Times bestseller, 
And you're a North Carolinian. We're going to get into that. Right. (laughs) You're a Southern lady. What was the backdrop of your childhood? Where'd you grow up and paint a picture, if you will, of the early years and chapters of your life? I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, which is tobacco country. I was born in 1962. It was in the middle of you know, integration in the public schools. And um, you know, I kind of, my life was, I think, pretty uh, perfect, to be honest. I had two very loving parents. I had a very strong nuclear family, but I also was being raised in a very white, what I would consider privileged environment and community. Not that we were wealthy, but I didn't know or see much of anything other than, you know, white people and white schools. So Winston-Salem was a pretty Southern community. It was white people on one side of the railroad tracks. It was African-American people on the other side. The two communities didn't really mix unless you had a domestic servant that worked for you or somebody that mowed your grass. My grandfather was what I would call today as probably a racist. I wasn't brought up to be a racist, but I wasn't brought up not to be one either. I didn't question anything uh, involving race or class or injustice or in criminal justice system, none of those things. It didn't, it wasn't a part of my life. So what's not a part of your life, you don't question. Thank you for that, because it is so important to what we're going to talk about today. Right. The reason we're having this conversation begins a night in college that changed everything for your life and, and led you to where you are today in your work. And that was the night that you were raped and almost killed. So I want to see what you're comfortable sharing about that night and also really be respectful and thoughtful about sharing things that are that traumatic. And that, you know, I want when people share things for it to be cathartic and empowering and not hurtful. So I just want to give you the space to share the night of the attack in a way that's comfortable for you. Well, I thank you for that. I I really do. I had come out of some pretty bad decision makings from 18, 19, 20 years old. By 21, I found myself at Elon College in Burlington, North Carolina, very small private school. And I began college kind of all over again. I had dated every wrong guy that you could possibly date and chosen bad majors. And by the time I was 22 years old, I had been at Elon for about a year. I was dating a dental student and I was also a 4.0 GPA student at school. So I was maintaining a straight A average. I was supposed to graduate valedictorian. And at the age of 22, I was out with my um, boyfriend during the morning On July 28th of 1984, I had gone to play tennis. It was hot, like most Southern days in July. And the evening plans were he was going to take me back to my apartment. He would go home. We would take showers. He would pick me up. We were going to go to dinner and end up at a party that evening at a friend's house. 
And, you know, that's pretty typical for a young college student. But after dinner that night, I came down with a very bad headache and asked him to take me home that I really felt very sick. And he did. He took me home. And my last memory that night was of him giving me some aspirin and some water and kind of standing close by my bed, making sure that I would be okay before I fell asleep. And I didn't hear him leave that night. I had gone to sleep pretty quickly. I didn't hear him leave. I didn't hear the police sirens around in the apartment complex. They were looking for someone who had attempted to break into a neighbor's home across the parking lot from me. I didn't hear anything at all until around 3 a.m. on July 29th when I thought I heard something moving in the room with me. I lived alone and something then brushed against my left arm. And when I opened my eyes and looked to the side of my bed, I could see the top of someone's head and I could see him moving towards the foot of the bed. I could hear his his shoes going across the carpet. I said, who is that who's there? And at that moment, a man jumped up on the bed and straddled my body with his knees. And I screamed and he put a gloved hand across my mouth and a knife to the left side of my throat and told me to shut up or he would kill me. And in these moments of trauma, And in these moments when you're not sure what's happening, your brain begins to process information really rapidly, but also very uh, uniquely. And then I thought, my God, I startled this person in the middle of robbing me. And and I, I said to him, please, you don't have to do this. You can take my money. You can take my car. You can have anything. I won't call the police. Just please leave. And He said to me, I don't want your money. And it was at that moment that I knew what was going to happen to me. I knew he was going to rape me, but I didn't know, of course, was I going to die? And would this be the last moment I have on the planet? The interesting thing is the week before, I had taken a walk with my sister around this lake that was close to my apartment. And we talked about what you would ever do if someone raped you. And my sister said, I would kick him. I would punch him. I would spit on him. I'd vomit. I would fight. And I remember saying to her that somewhere I had heard, if you stay calm, you may live. And that conversation came back to me. And I remember thinking to myself, you have to stay calm. You have got to stay present. I could smell alcohol on his breath. I could smell cigarettes and tobacco coming through the glove. I quickly ascertained I wasn't the first victim and I was not going to be his last victim. Wow. I had not read anywhere or heard about that conversation with your sister on the lake. That's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. But the clarity you had in the plan in the moment that you came up with is astounding. And it really was remaining calm and focused and strategic, which experiencing that trauma and having a strategic, well-thought-out plan to protect yourself is mind-blowing to me. But you do have this moment where you say, I will not die at the hands of this man. And you come up with a plan that ultimately saves your life. 
So can you share when that shift was and what you do next? Yeah. I mean, I knew that I was at a disadvantage. I'm on my back. There's a knife to my throat. I could smell alcohol, you know, on his breath. And I knew that fighting was going to get me killed. And there was a possibility I was going to die anyway. But I made the decision that night that if I died, it would not be on my back and it wouldn't be in the bed. There was a way for me to figure out how to survive and I just had to figure it out. And so I made two decisions that night. One is I'm not dying here. And two, if I survive this, I'm going to know who you are and I will watch you rot in hell. And over the next 20 minutes, as he began to assault me and rape me and talk to me and tell me things, I made a very concerted effort to deliberately look at him, which is really a difficult thing to do when you're being raped. Most people talk about these out-of-body moments where they just leave their bodies because it's just too painful to stay connected to your skin. But for me that night, staying there and present and connected to my skin was my only chance of surviving. And so I stayed and I stayed calm and I began to try to pay attention to everything about him that I could. I began to try to memorize the shape of his eyes, the shape of his nose. I was trying to find anything like a scar or a piercing or a tattoo, things that he couldn't alter later. I paid attention to his voice, the things he was saying to me that he had been in my apartment for a long period of time. He knew my name. He knew I lived in Winston-Salem. He had stolen my money. He had read postcards from my brother that were on my coffee table. He had taken a photograph of me out of my photo albums and asked me permission to keep it. He wanted to keep the photograph. And so all of these things I was trying to imprint in my brain. I was hoping that he would give me some piece of information as to who he was. And I knew that the only thing I had was my ability to stay calm and the fact that I had a really good memory. I was a straight-A student. I could memorize things. At one point, he came up and tried to kiss my mouth, and I turned my head to the right side because I knew that I was probably going to vomit, and I didn't want to choke to death on my own vomit. But that would end up saving my life. As he looked at me when I turned my head, and he said, relax, baby, I'm not going to hurt you. And for reasons that I've never been able to understand or explain, I said, I have a phobia of knives. I'm afraid of knives. If you'll just get off of me and take the knife to the front door and walk down the steps and drop the knife on my car and let me hear it hit the metal, I'll let you come back in. And he looked at me very strange and he said, really? And I knew that the power dynamics had just shifted. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough to where he would get off of me. He got off of me. I pulled a blanket off the edge of my bed and put it around my body because I knew that there was a chance I was going to be able to run and I wanted to be wearing something. But I also needed to stand close enough to him to figure out his height. I knew the police would ask me how tall he was, how much did he weigh, what was he wearing? And all of these things were absolutely paramount to me surviving that night. So I stood close enough to figure out that he was five foot 
11, six feet tall. He weighed 185 to 195 pounds. He was a light-skinned African-American male. He had short, close-cropped hair. He had a pencil-thin mustache. I was trying to memorize his clothes. He had on khaki fatigue pants and three-quarter length shirt, you know, down his sleeve that was navy blue with white stripes that went across his biceps. And he had on slip-on type of boat shoes, like black or navy blue or dark gray in color. But everything I could remember that night meant I was going to survive. And it's so interesting that you were this straight-A student and even going into this interview, you had were so prepared and you showed up early and downloaded these extra recordings. And that sounds minutiae at the moment, but the mindset of somebody who was so prepared, so thoughtful, so showing up and present and having a plan. I mean, it makes sense when you say, I think the correlation to sort of how you were in the world and how your brain operated, that that is where you went to that place of, control, plan, task. Mm -hmm. Some things happen next, and I want you to share that. And ultimately, you do make it out the door. Yeah, my plan was that he would go out of the door, I would lock it behind him, and I'd call the police. But he had already cut my phone lines before he'd come into my apartment. And he went to the front door and pretended to drop the knife out and then turned around and came back towards me and grabbed my arm to pull me back into the room and there was just no way I was going back into the bedroom that I was, I would die first. And I told him, I said, please, I just need a moment. Let me go to the bathroom. And he told me to hurry up. So as I went into the bathroom, I turned the light on very quickly. He yelled at me to turn it off, but I still had a couple of seconds of light that I could look at him. And I went into the bathroom trying to figure out my next plan because my first plan had failed. I couldn't get out the window. It was a small window and there was a drop all the way down to the basement. So that was not going to be an option. But then I remembered he had said during the assault that he had come through my kitchen, which was the back door. And my plan then became, you need to get to the kitchen. If the kitchen door's open, then maybe you can escape. So I came out of the bathroom and I said, could I just have a drink of water first? And he said for me to make him a Seagram's in seven that we were going to have a party. And I said, okay, I'll I'll make you a drink. And as I passed him, he went over to my stereo and turned it on looking for music because in his head, we were going to have a party. But again, when I walked by him, the stereo had given off a blue light, which illuminated a profile of his face. And again, it was just another position of him that I could look at and glean more information from. So I quickly made my way to the kitchen turn the light on because I knew that he wouldn't come into the kitchen with the light on. It would give me some space. It would give me some time. And I began to make noise with water running in the sink. And I threw ice cubes in the sink and I was slamming cabinet doors and drawers as I pulled my blanket really tight. And I opened up the back door and I just took off running. I thought that I would go next door to my neighbor and he would be home and he would save me but I had no idea he had been gone for the weekend. And as I was banging on the back door, I could see the rapist coming out of my back door. And now he was angry at me. He was mad. And I knew that once he caught me that I was going to die. So I did the next thing that made sense to me, which was to run towards light. And 
I took off through the complex. I was heading towards light when I saw a carport light on at someone's house. I didn't know who lived there, but I prayed that they were home. I jumped into the carport and began to bang on the back door, screaming at the top of my lungs, please let me in. I've just been raped. And the husband and wife who lived there with their family came to the back door and looked at me. And fortunately, the woman said, my God, it's a student. I see you're on campus. Let her in. And they did. And I fainted and they called 911 for the police. And the next thing that happens is you go to the hospital. What happens at this time? So I end up at the hospital. My body is the crime scene for sure. I mean, the evidence is like in me, it's on me. It's just, it's awful. There's the fingernail scrapings and the and the cheek swabs and the pubic hair combings. It is all of that. And you know, you've already been traumatized. You're at the hospital and you're under unbelievable trauma. And, and all of a sudden, you know, there's people coming into the room and there's things being done to your body that just are vile and disgusting. And it was during that exam that I heard a woman down the hall screaming, I mean, screaming. And I asked the officer that was in the room with me what had happened to her. And they said she had just been raped. And I asked if it was the same man who raped me. And they said, yes, we think so. It was the same description of the clothes. It was within you know, an hour of my rape and less than a mile of where I had lived. And so this man had not only attempted to break into my neighbor's home at midnight, but had raped me at 3 a.m. and then by 4 o'clock in the morning had raped a second woman. And so we had a very dangerous person. We had a serial rapist who was creating an incredible amount of harm and violence in the community. I was absolutely committed to help the police find this person. Eventually. You are standing in front of a physical lineup and as well as a photo lineup. What is that process like? Well, again, none of these things you understand. You know, you're, you've been traumatized. And three days after the rape, I had received a phone call from um, the detective who was in charge and asked for me to come down and look at a photographic lineup. So, of course, I wanted to. And I had given a great bit of description within hours of the assault. And the description and the details were so good that I had been asked to help with a composite sketch. And the composite sketch had gone out into the newspaper and led to a suspect. So by the third day after the assault, they had a suspect. And I knew that. So when I was called down to the police station to look at this photographic lineup, you're 22 years old and you've been called to look at six photographs. You know that one of those photographs belongs to the person who just destroyed your life and this other woman's life. And I wanted to help the police. Um, they gave me the instructions to, you know, don't feel compelled to choose anyone. The suspect may or may not be in the lineup. Take your time. But if I saw him, I was to lift up the photograph and initial the back of it, which I did. And I initialed the back of photograph number three, and the police officer said to me, good job, that's who we thought it was. And I was so relieved. The second victim had been punched and bitten and slapped during her assault. He had a flashlight that he put straight in her eyes. He put a pillow over her face. And she was not able to 
remember many of the details. So I was really doing this for her. I was doing it for me. I was doing it for every woman who had never gotten justice. So the photo lineup happens. What is next? What is a physical lineup experience at that time? The photographic lineup was three days after the assault. And so seven days later, I was called back to the police station to do a physical lineup. And the physical lineups that I had you know, seen on television and in movies was that proverbial moment, you know, where the, the victim or witness comes to the police station, they're looking through the one-way glass, and there's the, the guys, uh, you know, along the wall, and you can see them, and they can't see you, and you're, you're safe. And that's what I expected my experience with the physical lineup to be like. But this was um, a time during a renovation for the police department. So I was taken to an old schoolhouse that had been abandoned. And they brought me up to the second floor into a schoolroom. And the only thing between me and the seven men in the physical lineup was a folding table. So there was no partition. There was no glass. There was no mirrors. There was no door. There was no curtain. So you know you're going to stand in the room with the man who raped you. Right. I mean, the energy of that in your body must just be palpable. It was terrifying. I'll be honest with you, it was terrifying because we're now in broad daylight. And I'm thinking to myself, if I don't get this right, this guy's going to walk. And if this guy walks, he knows who I am. He knows where I live. He will come and kill me. So I have to get this right. And I remember being very deliberate. I remember being very methodical. I, I, I wanted to take my time. You know, I was given the same instructions as with the photographic lineup to not feel compelled to choose anyone. The suspect may or may not be in there, but if I saw him, to write his number on a piece of paper. And I saw him. It was number five. And when I saw him, I got a little confused because he was not wearing blue. Uh, his hair was longer than I had remembered. But as I looked in his face, I was like, yeah, that's the guy. I mean, I'll never forget his face as long as I live. It's, it's him. It's number five. And I wrote it on a piece of paper. I gave it to the detective. And again, they said to me, good job. That's who you picked out in the photograph. And again, you know, you're just overcome with emotion. Uh, you're relieved. You're, you feel safe. You can breathe. You, you feel like the community's safe again. You feel like you've, you're going to achieve justice. You feel like you are a good victim, that I did it right. He goes to trial. What is his ultimate sentence? Ronald Cotton is, is now identified twice. You've identified him in the photo lineup and the physical lineup as well. Right. He goes to trial, obviously, the prosecution builds their case. What is the verdict in his sentence? We went to trial in January of 1985. We made the decision not to try both cases because the second survivor had not been able to make a good identification. So we just tried mine. And at the end of the two weeks, Ronald received life in 54 years. And how did you feel hearing the verdict in the sentence? overcome, overwhelmed, overjoyed. The district attorney's office, the detectives, the police department were all relieved. You know, we had gotten a dangerous person off the streets of Burlington, North Carolina. And, and then they look at you and tell you that 
you can put your life back together again, right? That it's that you can you can move forward, you can you rebuild. But you know, the problem with sexual violence and sexual assault is who you had been moments before you were raped is gone. How does it change you? I mean, what are the scars and the impacts on your relationship, on your day-to-day life? How are you different as a person? You can't trust anymore. You feel as if you're just broken in so many ways. I often talk about sexual assault in terms of a hurricane. You can imagine, you know, your house is standing, then all of a sudden this thing goes through and your home and everything that you had collected is scattered and broken and gone and it's disappeared. And there's pieces that you look for that somehow resemble your life before. You find a picture, you find a teacup, you find something that reminds you of your former life. But the the majority of, of your former life is no longer available to you. And so for me, my boyfriend just could not handle the relationship. I needed more support than he could give me. My friends got tired of the crying. They just simply gave up. My family, the good Southern family, decided, you know, this was just too unpleasant. Let's just not talk about that. Let's just don't bring it up. Don't talk about the thing that happened to Jennifer. And so no one talked to me. And I couldn't go to sleep at night because I was afraid all the time, which meant I couldn't wake up in the mornings to go to work or to go to school. I started, you know, missing classes. I started making B's and C's. And and honestly, the thing that got me through the days and the nights were just unbelievable amounts of alcohol and drugs that if I could snort enough cocaine up my nose and drink enough vodka down my throat, then maybe I could get through the next two hours, the next six hours. By the spring of 1985, I just about died. I had come out of a 36-long cocaine-induced crazy time and realized that if I continued to live the way I was living, that I would most certainly die. And if I died, then he would win, and I'm just too damn mean to let him win. So I started recovering, if you can say that. I did graduate with a 3.89, not a 4.0. I didn't graduate valedictorian. I didn't marry the perfect guy. I didn't go on to grad school, which had been my plan, but I was alive. And in that decade that follows, I know you become a mother of triplets, and you said that every day you prayed for his death. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. But you know what? Honestly, I didn't even just pray for his death. I prayed for pain and torture before his death. Like, I didn't want it to be a quick death. I wanted him to suffer, and then I wanted him to die. And yes, that became a daily prayer. So you're a mom with young kids, and a decade after the attack, you get a call from an investigator, and what does he say to you on the line that day? That was the spring of 1995, and it was Mike Galden who had been the original investigator, the first person I saw, to be honest with you, after the assault. And really, I say this in all sincerity, he was really my hero. He Many, many times, he was the person who kept me from going over the edge. So I trusted him. 
And he called me, this was 11 years later, and asked if he and the ADA of Alamance County could come in to see me. And I, of course, said, yes, I'd love to see you. It's always nice to see you. And so he came into Winston-Salem, which is where I was living with my children. And he asked me if I had ever heard of DNA. And most of my college classes that I took were science-based. So, of course, I knew what DNA was. Plus, the O.J. Simpson case had you know, taken over the, the country. And I said, yeah, I know what DNA is. Why? And he said, well, you know, Ronald has always proclaimed his innocence. We know that he's not innocent. We know we have the right guy. But if the state of North Carolina allows this thing called post-conviction DNA testing, your blood sample from the rape kit has disintegrated after 11 years, and you would have to consent to a new blood test. And I remember looking at them saying, look, I got five-year-old triplets, and I'm not going to court, and we're not doing this again, that at some point there has to be finality. And so I called my doctor and asked if I could come to the lab right then and get blood drawn, and they did, and they went with me, and I gave them my blood, and it went down I-40 towards Raleigh, North Carolina, and I didn't think at all about it. I didn't spend one moment wondering about what the DNA results were going to show because for 11 years, I knew, you know, who had raped me. I knew who had raped this other woman and it was Ronald Cotton. I had spent 11 years having nightmares with his face attached to it. So I knew who it was. And what happens next? So just a few months after they had come to visit me in Winston-Salem, they called me back up and asked if they could come back to Winston. And I said, of course. And they came to my house and they looked at me and they said, this DNA doesn't belong to Ronald Cotton. It belongs to a man named Bobby Poole. And Bobby Poole had become a name during 1987 under Vordir in a second trial. Uh, This man who had apparently professed to have committed these crimes because he was in central prison by now in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was from Burlington, North Carolina. He was a serial rapist. I had heard the name, and in the second trial, they had brought him into the courtroom, and I had no memory of him, and I told the judge, I don't know who he is, and the person who raped me is Ronald Cotton, and that's all we need to know. And now in 1995, they're telling me that the DNA belongs to Bobby Poole. And, you know, I don't, I have not come up with a vocabulary word yet that explains that moment for me. Everything went black and I don't remember much of it. Uh, Mike Galden said I fell to the floor, that I wailed, I cried, I sobbed, but I don't remember it. I just remember everything vanishing and like the earth opened and I fell in it and it swallowed me. It was one of the worst feelings of my life. It was so much more difficult than the assault. It was so much more difficult than the recovery of sexual assault. This was the realization that not only an innocent man had gone to prison for 11 years, but we had also left Bobby Poole out on the streets for an extra nine months before he was, you know, eventually apprehended. And he had committed 24 other violent crimes during that time, six of which were first-degree rapes. 
So it was all of that that you're having to process. I can't fathom the layers of what you need to process in that moment and at that mm-hmm. time. It just seems so layered. I mean, it's w- which emotion, which loss, which grief do you even process? <laughs> well, you know, Kimmy, the overwhelming emotion that I felt was fear. What do you mean? Why? Well, I mean, you're reconciling that this man has been in prison for 11 years. He's walking out. This is the first week of June. Um, He's walking out on June 30th. So within a number of weeks, you know, this man's going to be released. And you You mean Ronald Cotton is going to be released? That's right. He's going to be released. He's going to go home to his family. But I don't know Ronald Cotton. The only thing I know about Ronald Cotton is the thing I created in my head, the thing I created in my soul, right? He's walking out of prison. And I have five-year-old children. And so you think to yourself, my God, I mean, he's going to be angry. He's going to want revenge. He's going to want retaliation. He's going to want these things. And of course, he's going to want these things. Like, who wouldn't want those things? Both of our lives had been derailed at the age of 22. We were the same age. And Ronald was coming out at 33 years old. I was 33 years old. And in that 11 years, I had gone to college. I had gotten married. I owned a home. I had children. Like I had these things. Ronald's coming out at 33 years old and he's going to have none of these things. And he's going to be angry. And so fear was palatable. And it took you two years before you met Ronald Cotton. What were you waiting for that that came at two years where you were ready to meet him? And what are the circumstances? I mean, how did you? Did you reach out? Did he reach out? How do you eventually meet Ronald Cotton? You know, I, I often talk about this journey that we both have been on is very organic in nature, and it's true. I was never going to meet Ronald Cotton, but a man out of Boston who worked for Frontline PBS, wanted to do this documentary about the fallibility of eyewitness identification. And so he found me, and he did a really good job of finding me. And then he informed me that Ronald had said he would participate, and I realized that if Ronald told his story, who was going to tell my story, and I'm the only person who can tell my story, because I'm the only person who knows my story. I agreed to participate, but only under the, you know, understanding that Ronald stays in Burlington and I'm in Winston-Salem and we don't ever get together because he would, you know, kill me. And Ben Loderman said that he would agree to that. And over the next few months, we participated separately in this film called What Jennifer Saw. And What Jennifer Saw aired in February of 1997. And at the end of that film, what you hear me say is I know that Ronald's innocent, but I still see him in my nightmares. And the last thing Ronald says is, I know she's sorry, but I really need to hear that from her. And it was that moment that not only did I realize that if I didn't take the next step, that forever, forever, the monster in my nightmares was going to look like Ronald. And that was not fair because it wasn't Ronald. I also knew that Uh, Ronald did need to hear it from me and that he deserved that. So in April of 1997, in a small church not far from where the crime had happened, I was in the pastor study waiting for Ronald. And, you know, before I really could get my thoughts together, this huge, massive six foot four man comes walking into the room. 
And I remember thinking, uh, I, I don't even know what to call him, right? I mean, you know, Ron sounds too familiar and Mr. Cotton sounds like we're back in court and, you know, I you know what to say. And really before I could get my thoughts together, I again started to sob and I just looked at him and said, if I spent the rest of my life telling you I'm sorry, could you ever forgive me? And Ronald starts to cry and I was crying and we held hands and he looked at me and he said, you know what, I forgave you years ago and I'm not angry at you. I want you to be happy, and I want to be happy, and I want us to have good lives, and we can't do that if you're looking over your shoulders thinking I'm going to hurt you because I'm not going to. And it was this moment for both of us where we were able to sit in this space together and kind of lean into each other's stories and witness each other's harms and each other's grief and ask each other the questions that we had needed to know. and. It was that process that really began to heal both of us. What were those questions that were so important for both of you to have the answers to? You know, I wanted to know, where were you that night? Really? Like, where were you that night? And he said, you know, I was where my family said I was. I was watching television, drinking beer at the house. And he wanted to know why did you think it was me? And I didn't have an answer except because you look like him. And, um, you know, at that point, I didn't know enough about memory to say, well, because I was led to, to pick you, to be honest with you. But by the time, you know, I'd picked Ronald out of the lineup, he looked like the rapist. He looked like the composite sketch. There's all kinds of things that filter into, you know, traumatized memory that causes us to make mistakes. But we just talked, and we wanted to know about each other's families, and we wanted to know about, I wanted to know what prison had been like for him, and was it as terrible as they say it is? I mean, it was those things, right? Who are we as human beings? And you and I talked about this on the phone, and I think this is so important, that the media sort of descends and globs onto the story, which has now been shared on PBS and what Jennifer saw. And you're really thrust into the spotlight in front of cameras. And you felt almost that you were required like the sense of atonement and that you're being publicly flogged for sending this innocent man to prison for a decade of his life. And so that narrative has shifted, right? Now, you have victimized somebody, almost you're the perpetrator, you've caused harm. But meanwhile, you are the victim of a brutal rape and a man almost killing you. So that's a hard position to put yourself in over and over again. So publicly, what was that experience like for you and, and maybe for him as well? Well, I mean, I think it it evolved. I think at the beginning... I didn't understand any of it. I didn't understand what was happening to me. I just knew that everybody wanted to hear the story. And everybody wanted me to stand on the stage and talk about all the terrible things that I had done. And I didn't understand that that was actually a false narrative, right? I mean, I knew what had happened to me and I knew what had happened to Ron, but no one had ever explained to me what had happened to my memory. All I knew was... My job now was to flail myself and just open up my heart and soul and, yes, be flogged and just be pummeled by audiences everywhere. 
Were you living with tremendous guilt or where were you emotionally with what had happened? I was, yeah, I mean, guilt, shame. Yeah, it was, it was debilitating. It was paralyzing. It was suffocating. It was, it was terrible. And I did that for 15 years. Wow. I went everywhere. I went all through Canada, all through the United States, Mexico, and Sweden, and you name it, I I went there and I told the story. And, you know, one of the things, well, several of the things that really came out of that was the audience and the general public needed somebody to blame. They wanted somebody to blame. And that's the culture we live in. Somebody's to blame and somebody's going to have to pay for it. And I was that face. I was the poster girl for it. And I accepted that role because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I thought that was my penance for what had happened to Ronald. So can you break down the systematic failure that led to Ron spending that decade in prison and also just maybe briefly explain for our audience the science of memory in these traumatic events and attacks? Yeah. You know, the first time I really understood it was in 2000 when I was in Michigan, and I was listening to a presentation by an eyewitness identification expert. His name is Gary Wells. And he was talking about how memory becomes contaminated under certain circumstances, right? Under weapon-focused circumstances, cross-racial issues, just different things that would cause our memories to be less than accurate. And I remember as he was going through his PowerPoint presentation and I was listening to it, I thought, oh my God, that's exactly what happened to me. Like, why has no one ever explained this to me? I had been telling my story and no one had told me what had happened to my brain that night. And so just for, you know, to kind of go back a little bit, I'm sexually assaulted at three o'clock in the morning and it's dark and it's a stranger. And there's a knife to my throat. And I'm under incredible pressure and trauma and fear to try to figure out, A, how I'm going to survive, and B, am I going to be able to remember this person? So I do the best I can. And I got a very good look at who had assaulted me. I, I was actually pretty accurate as to what this person looked like. And then several hours later, you're at the police station, and they're beginning to collect your memory, which is a piece of evidence. And it is very fragile evidence. I mean, our memories are what they are until someone starts walking in them. And as my memories being collected, you know, you're being asked questions about the height, the weight, the shape of the face. And the officer who was collecting that said, can you help with this composite sketch? And of course, my answer was yes. But there's billions of people in the world. And so you're having to come up with an, a, a generic picture of the eyes that you remember seeing for a short period of time under incredible trauma. And you begin to piece together this face and it overlays, you know, the eyes to the eyebrows, the eyelashes, and you begin to build this face. And as you're building the face, what people don't realize is your memories being contaminated because the eyes you just picked out aren't really his eyes. And the nose you've just picked out is similar to his nose, but it's not his nose. And so you're, as you're building this face, the original memory you had is becoming messed with, right? 
it's, it's starting to be skewed. And as they're done, you know, when they're done and they hold this composite sketch up and say, does this look like the person who raped you? you know, your answer is truthful. Yes, it does. But it's not the person who raped you or the person who tried to shoot you or the person who just broke into your house. It's a likeness. And at that point, you know, my original memory of the man who had assaulted me is an overlay now of a composite sketch. So when I go to do the photographic lineup three days later, and as I'm going through my, my Rolodex in my brain, my memory, and I'm looking at the six photographs, what I'm actually drawing from as I'm looking through the photographs is the closest photograph to the composite sketch not my memory, because my memory is now contaminated. Once you understand the science and how the system was really broken, all, all of those sequential things that added up to, at the time, was to your point, from a place of truth and intention and deep truth, deep intention. And once you understand that, you get the context and the framework, are you able to begin to forgive yourself? Not that you needed to, by the way, I don't want to presume that, but clearly you're in a place of deep guilt or you are able to begin forgiving yourself. Kimmy, that took, that took almost 20 years. And again, to your point, not that I should forgive myself because I didn't do anything wrong. The system did something wrong. The system, I mean, I can't, I can't wrongfully convict anybody. It was the state of North Carolina that arrested Ronald. It was the state of North Carolina that you know, took the man. I mean, it was state versus cotton. It wasn't Jennifer Thompson versus cotton. It was the state of North Carolina. But what I find so interesting about what we're talking about, this, this idea of Jennifer forgiving Jennifer, is that, and, I, and I'm being truthful here, I have never presented, and I've presented to hundreds of audiences from, you know, 25 people to 2,000 people. I have never presented to an audience where any single person has ever said to me, my God, Jennifer and Ronald, how could you all ever forgive Bobby Poole for what he did to both of you? For whatever reason, when we talk about wrongful convictions, no one seems to want to blame the actual perpetrator. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Like, we've, like the audience has totally forgot that there was a man named Bobby Poole. Who caused all of this. Yes. Yeah, who started all of it. Who tried to rape three women and only successfully raped two that night. Who went on to create havoc in Burlington, North Carolina. I want to ask you the question that you just said thousands of people have failed to ask. Have you forgiven Bobby and has Ron forgiven him? Yeah, that's a great question. I will tell you that I have, but I think it's important to understand that forgiveness can look very differently under different contexts, right? What Bobby Poole did to me, what Bobby Poole did to us, in many ways is unforgivable. What I have been able to do is not give him another moment of my life. And I had to do that because I had lived in such sadness and such brokenness for so long that I didn't want to live there anymore. And I didn't want to live like that anymore. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life hating somebody. I knew what that felt like. I had done that for 11 years. 
And I didn't want to give him, I didn't want to give him that. I didn't want him to own another moment of my life. And so for me, forgiveness looked like letting go. And forgiveness for me looked like taking my power back and finding my voice again. So this notion of turning pain into purpose, as you shared in the beginning, started a nonprofit to address criminal injustice, really specific to to what you and Ron had lived through and survived. Do you believe in that, the the pain into purpose? And I mean, has that piece of it been cathartic and, you know, explain the, the work you do today and how it makes a difference? It has been for me. I mean, again, you know, you said as we were talking, you know, how I'm driven and I am very task oriented. Like I need to have a task. It it does give me purpose, but it also gives meaning from the mess that was created, you know, so long ago. You know, I have been doing this work for a long, long, long time. And I was meeting innocent men and women. I was meeting their families and their children who got left behind, their mothers, their siblings. I was listening to their stories. And I was collecting these stories and I was bearing witness to their grief and their trauma and their harm. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, there should be a place for people like us, right? I mean, if the states are creating the brokenness in true restorative justice language, then it's the state's responsibility to fix the brokenness. It's the state's responsibility to apologize and to figure out what we all need and and how do we get that. But they weren't. And I got tired. So in 2015, I decided to launch Healing Justice Project as a place for everyone who has been harmed by a wrongful conviction. You know, one of the interesting things about wrongful convictions is that we tend to look at wrongful convictions through a singular narrative, right? You open up the newspaper, you read a story about, you know, somebody who was wrongfully convicted and they spent 25 or 35 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. And that's a terrible story. And then that's the end of the story. And that's all you walk away with knowing. But that's not really the story. The story starts with somebody who got raped, who got murdered. And the narrative is so much bigger and wider than this New York Times piece or the blog you just read on Facebook. The story is that hundreds of people get harmed in every wrongful conviction. There is a crime victim. There's his or her family. There's the innocent man and woman there's their family. It was the community that got left with Bobby Poole on the streets and all of those people who become collateral or secondary victims. It's the jurors who were asked to be good citizens and sit on that trial and listen to evidence that oftentimes isn't correct or in its entirety and render a judgment against a person. It's their families when they open up the newspaper 30 years later and realize that they were part of a criminal justice system train wreck. It's the prosecutors, it's the police. And yes, we have some bad actors out there, but I want to believe that most of them are trying to do the best job that they can and they got it wrong. But it's everybody who touched that case 
who got hurt and got harmed and got failed. It's all of those people. It's, as we say at Heal and Justice, it's the all-harmed approach. And so I started it five years ago as a place for people who are failed to come together and get support and to witness each other's stories and to share our experiences and to try to heal together as a community. That's beautiful. And I'm so, so glad that for everyone, for the ripple effect of the hundreds of people that are impacted, that you have created that that healing space for them. Yeah. What is your relationship with Ron today? Well, I mean, Ron and I, gosh, our, our relationship is so interesting and unique and sometimes complicated, right? I mean, I will always love Ronald Cotton. And I think that I'm safe to say that Ronald Cotton will always love me. We are friends. We've been through some very unique experiences. I'm driven differently than Ronald. I think Ronald wants to enjoy his life and, you know, throw a fishing pole in the pond and go to a flea market and watch a basketball game. And for me, I'm driven to solve problems. But we will always deeply care for each other. And we will always be a part of each other's lives. We, Our children grew up knowing each other. Our grandchildren are being born. So, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a very important piece of Jennifer's tapestry. Jennifer, what do you hope people take away from your story? When they read the next wrongful conviction story out there, I hope they can think deeper that it isn't just the wrongfully convicted person. It's everybody. It's his or her mother that died before ever hugging her child when they walk into freedom for the first time. It's the children who grew up without that parent. It's the crime victims who lose a piece of themselves forever and they'll never get that back. And murder victim family members who will never get to share Thanksgiving or a birthday or a graduation with their loved one because they're never coming back. And I honestly believe that if we can think about these cases in a more wide and deeper narrative and a more truthful and transparent narrative, I believe that we can start putting some reforms and policies in place that help us all. And the other part I, I hope people take away is that Healing Justice really is a unique organization. And our goal, our singular goal is to heal, is to use restorative justice principles and help people heal from the harm that was created by something that was never their fault to begin with. So, you know, I'd love for your listeners to check out um, Healing Justice Project and see the work we're doing because it really is unique. It's different in scope. It's the only organization in the country that works with everyone harmed by wrongful convictions. Well, I hope they do as well. And I think I can say with deep certainty that anyone who listened to this, the next time they read an article about a wrongful conviction, will think about it in a whole new way based on this conversation. So I thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I thank you for having me. I really do. I thank you for wanting to hear the, the whole story. Jennifer, we end with a little something called rapid fire. On a light, fun note. So are you ready? I don't know. Let's give it a shot. (laughs) 
We both share a love of the great state of North Carolina in spite of their justice (laughs) failings. Favorite Southern meal? Favorite Southern meal would probably be shrimp and grits. Oh, so good. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to make that this week. Best way to spend a Friday night? Best way to spend a... Well, for me, it's sitting in a rocking chair listening to the bugs. (laughs) That's just me, though. I'm old. This is all so Southern. I love it. And (laughs) is it Crook's Kitchen? Crook's Corner. Crook's Corner. Best shrimp Mm -hmm. and grits in, in Chapel Hill. Yeah. Two things on your bucket list. Oh, two things on my bucket list. I think one would be to um, go to New Zealand and hike the Milford Trail trek. And the other thing on my bucket list would probably be kayaking with the whales in Alaska. Biggest vice? Oh my God, biggest vice. Well, okay, I'm going to totally out myself right now, okay? Because my biggest vice, which I actually don't think is a bad vice because Mediterranean people live longer than anybody else in the world, is having wine with my dinner. <laughs> oh, that's not that bad. <laughs> I didn't think so. I mean, you know. <laughs> your hope for your children. For them to be happy. Really happy. Thank you, Jennifer. You're welcome. This was a true pleasure and I learned a lot and I am grateful for your time and trust and sharing your story with both me and our audience. Well, thank you, Kimmy. And I hope to one day see you and I'll make you some shrimp and grits when you come. (laughs) Sweet tea, please. All right. right. (laughs) Well, I look forward to it. And I want to thank Madison Merrill a fan of the podcast, who now is is becoming a friend. She introduced me to Jasmine Hines at the California Mm. Innocence Project. And I called Jasmine, letting her know we were looking for stories of wrongful conviction. And she selflessly said, as much as I would love to work with you and have it benefit our nonprofit, I want to introduce you to Jennifer because I think she will have the greatest impact on your audience. So people ask me a lot how we find these stories, and it is things like that. People who care about stories moving the world forward. It's took a listener who called her own boss and the boss who selflessly said, I want to introduce you to my friend Jennifer. So Jasmine and Madison, thank you for bringing this conversation to our audience today. Today's interview with Jennifer Thompson supports her nonprofit, Healing Justice. As you know from listening to this interview, the damage and pain of a wrongful conviction goes far beyond the alleged perpetrator and the victim. There are the children of those people. There are the moms and dads of those people. There are the jurors who sent somebody to life or perhaps death and found out they were in fact wrong. So Jennifer has dedicated her life to addressing the collective harm caused by wrongful convictions in this country. Restorative justice restores lives. They are there with all sorts of programs and support to help everyone rebuild their life for a healthy and successful future and to work with stakeholders to prevent future harm. You can check out their work 
at healingjusticeproject.org. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jennifer today. And if you like the episode, I hope you will make the time to write us a review or simply share a rating if it's a good one. (laughs) Thanks, guys, and I'll see you next time. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.